listeners, this is another crossover bonus episode, but I have to admit it's a little off the beaten track this time. This is a co-hosting episode I did with Kemper Donovan of the All About Agatha podcast, which is in fact all about Agatha Christie and her mystery novels and short stories and scholarship about her. As you'll hear in this episode, I discovered that in the mid-60s, Agatha published a book of Christmas stories, and they were, for me, the smoking gun of proof of Agatha's deep Christian faith. I had suspected it, everyone seems to take it for granted, but I had never seen textual evidence, and this book was it. So what you'll hear in this episode is my discussion with Kemper about the titular story, Star Over Bethlehem, as we uh, pick it apart in a very careful sort of way, and you will hear all the rich biblical and theological allusions that go into it. And then later on in the episode, we also also discuss a theology book, Low Anthropology, by David Zoll of Mockingbird Ministries, and wrap up with some reflections on why it is that people read and enjoy mystery novels. So even if you are not particularly a fan of detective novels, as I am, you will, I think, enjoy this episode very much and discovering this relatively unknown facet of the apparently third best-selling author of all time, second only to the Bible and Shakespeare. So here it is, all about Agatha. Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I am Kemper Donovan, and today, dear listeners, we are doing something rather different. We are going to get a little personal today about Agatha Christie because we are going to talk about her religious faith and her personal religious beliefs. But we are going to do that within uh, the podcast's usual framework of discussing a story that Agatha Christie wrote. That short story is Star Over Bethlehem. And I am both thrilled and relieved that I am not going to be doing this alone. Yes, I have a guest co-host for you today who is much better qualified than I am to be speaking about all these religious matters. My co-host is Sarah Hinlicky Wilson, a writer, a professor, a pastor, a fellow podcaster, and most importantly, a huge Agatha Christie fan. Sarah got her master's degree in divinity and her PhD in systematic theology at Princeton Theological Seminary. Currently, she is living in Japan and serving as a pastor at the Tokyo Lutheran Church. She's published hundreds of articles in places like Christianity Today, The Christian Century, Books and Culture, etc., etc. She's written a memoir and a number of scholarly books. She's also edited and contributed to a whole bunch more. Recently, she wrote a long article I absolutely devoured on Miss Marple's low anthropology, which I will definitely be asking her about because her article contains a wholly convincing and wholly original hypothesis for why murder mysteries are as enduringly popular as they are. We have so much to discuss. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Kemper. I can't even tell you how excited I am to be a part of this after listening with rapt attention to All About Agatha, both the public one and the Patreon one for low these many years. So thank you for responding positively to my email asking, could I possibly come on your podcast and be a part (laughs) of your glory for a while? Yes, and I, I left out that important piece of information that Sarah is also a patron. 
So, uh, you know, all that wonderful bonus content. Look at look at what a patronage of this podcast can lead to. <laughs> a guest totally. co-host spot. <laughs> all right. Well, we are going to be discussing, as I said up top, a number of things. But let's get right into the story that we'll be focusing on, which is Star Over Bethlehem. Now, the title of this story marks it out as having a religious theme. Bethlehem is, of course, widely recognized and celebrated as the birthplace of Jesus. And to this day, the city does a booming business, especially around the Christmas holiday. This is a little bit our Christmas in summer episode. Perhaps this is a slightly strange time to be doing this episode, but... I like it. It's warm, at least here up in uh, the, the Northern Hemisphere. And we can think about Christmas and Christmassy things at this time of year as well. It always makes me happy. So the star over Bethlehem uh, itself is mentioned in the New Testament, in the book of Matthew, uh, where a bright star is said to have appeared in the eastern sky when Jesus was born. And then the three wise men or magi notice this star and they make their journey to the baby Jesus with their three gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I'm sure many of you have heard this. Christy herself makes reference to the three wise men and their gifts at numerous points throughout her oeuvre. But always incidentally, except for this story, this is a rare example of a story-centered religious theme. So let's talk a little bit about publication history before we get into the story proper. Star Over Bethlehem, the short story, is the titular story in the collection Star Over Bethlehem and Other Stories, which is an illustrated book of poetry and short stories that all have religious and specifically Christian themes. The book was published late in Christie's career when I imagine she was able to prevail more easily on her publishers to publish whatever the heck she wanted to. Uh, in the <laughs> UK, sure. it was published by Collins, not Collins Crime Club, but still by Collins on the 1st of November, 1965, just two weeks before at Bertram's Hotel, which was the Christie for Christmas. But this was the Christmas Christie, <laughs> which is what Ooh, the little... I see what you did there. Right? Yeah, it's what the little dust jacket on my my copy says it says a christmas christie the perfect little gift and indeed it is <laughs> so according to christie biographer janet morgan the book was well received and it was one of the few instances in which agatha actually liked getting requests for autographed copies that makes a lot of sense to me given what an obviously personal book this is you don't write a slim volume of christian themed stories and poems when you're a best-selling mystery author unless you want to in my copy the star over bethlehem portion of the book because it actually includes a number of poems in addition to the Star Over Bethlehem volume. That part of the book is just 81 pages. So this is a really slim volume here that she put out. And even though it was well-received and it did well, I have to imagine it was not the bestseller that at Bertram's Hotel and all of her other books at this point in her career always were. I do know that the short story Star Over Bethlehem was actually written well before it was published in book form. Uh, Janet Morgan mentions that Christie's agent Edmund Cork had arranged for its publication at Christmas in an American magazine all the way back in 1947. Unfortunately, Janet Morgan did not mention which magazine, so I do not know. Uh, and Wikipedia, yes, I'm treading lightly here, but I am using Wikipedia here as a source. There is a mention there of a UK publication one year earlier in December 1946 in Woman's Journal. So those seem to be the serial publications of this short story specifically. My sense is that Star Over Bethlehem is the only one of these six stories in the collection to have been published prior to the book collection. 
But that's just my sense. I'm happy to be proven wrong on that score. And if anyone has any other information, please let me know. There is not a ton of academic scholarship surrounding this book, at least among the sources that I traditionally consult uh, when I'm doing these episodes. So if anyone has more information, as always, I would really, really love to benefit from it. Interestingly, this collection is written not by Agatha Christie, but by Agatha Christie Mallowan. And that is another indicator that this story and all the stories in the collection fall outside the purview of Christie's usual output. The only other book to have been written by Agatha Christie Mallowan was her 1946 memoir, Come Tell Me How You Live. Catherine Brobeck and I covered that in a Patreon bonus episode. Now that I think about it, it's actually curious to me that her autobiography, which of course was published posthumously, wasn't also written by Agatha Christie Mallowan, because that kind of would have made sense but my guess is that it was so closely associated with her mysteries, her publisher thought that would have been confusing. I wonder if Christie herself would have insisted on that had she been alive. Maybe not. Maybe it was always going to be by Agatha Christie without the Mallowan. But that would be consistent, <laughs> I think, if her autobiography were written by Agatha Christie Mallowan, because that really is the name that I think she identified as her personal name. This collection was, of course, also published in the U.S. in the same year, in 1965, by Dodd Mead. I should note that this is the Rare Christie book that comes with illustrations. There are these lovely pencil sketches in gray and gold done by Elise Wrigley. I think they're very understated and tasteful. I quite liked them. They do appear in my copy of the book that I read. Uh, apparently, Christie was also a fan. For once, as reported by Janet Morgan, she was actually happy with the jacket and illustration that Collins proposed. They did not have to fight <laughs> or haggle over uh, any little issues. So this collection features six short stories and five poems. And as I mentioned, Sarah and I will be focusing on Star Over Bethlehem specifically, which in addition to being the titular story is also the first story in the collection. I may cover some of these other stories and poems in future episodes, but I think Star Over Bethlehem is by far the best of the bunch. Not that there isn't a lot to discuss about the others, just know that one of these other stories is written from the point of view of a donkey, and another one is set in the year 2000. That's right, it's set in the future. Our past now, but uh, that was very, very interesting. So I encourage Christie fans to read this book because they are some interesting outlier stories written by Agatha Christie. One final note before we get into the story properly. Sometimes this volume is paired with Christie's other poems. That is the case in the copy that I read. So I'd just like to acknowledge that in addition to the five poems that appear in this collection, Christie actually published two other books of poetry. The first book was very early on in 1924 in a volume called The Road of Dreams that she seems to have pretty much self-published. And then very late in her career in 1973, we have a book simply called Poems. So please know I plan to discuss the poetry of Agatha Christie in a more robust way in a future episode or episodes. I am now officially going to shut up. <laughs> and before we get into <laughs> our usual breakdown, is there anything that you'd like to add, Sarah? Well, I should just say how I discovered this book, because obviously I think it's not a well-known part of Agatha's oeuvre, but I believe it was on agathachristie.com when I was like trying to print out, you know, like all the Miss Marples in order. So I was sure to, to cover <laughs> them all for the article that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. I think I just saw there this Christmas thing and I was like, oh, that's intriguing. 
And yeah, so that's why I ended up reading it and being like, okay, now I... I've heard everybody say, biographers and fans and everyone else, like Agatha was a woman of very deep faith. And I think we can all like feel that in the texture of her writing, but it's very hard to like get the hard evidence. So I've sort of been in my own like detective mode looking for the clues that she was really as religious as everyone seems to assume she is. And um, one of the reasons I got so excited about this book and reached out to you about it is because it has very hard evidence, textual evidence that she really, really, really knew the Bible well and the Christian tradition so well that she could play around with it, experiment with it, reconfigure things as we're going to see in the story we're talking about. So yeah, so as as of my own sort of detective of her religiosity, that's why I think this is a really fascinating book to read in her whole set of works. Yeah, I think I love that. I think that's going to be a running theme of our discussion that it's this thing that everyone seems to know about Christy and almost assume, right? Like we know right. she was a churchgoer. We know she was a pretty traditional person in a lot of ways. So I think there's just this general assumption that, well, I'm sure she was also a devoutly Christian person, but for a writer that has this, you know, vast output, where is the evidence? Well, here is the evidence in this very story. Here it is. Uh, as, as we will be discussing. All right. So let's get into it and discuss our victim. This is a little difficult. And I just want to make clear here at the outset, because we are talking about a, a deeply religious story. I am not trying to be blasphemous here or otherwise insensitive or offensive even to Christian readers. But given that this story is steeped in the Bible and in, you know, the chronicling of Jesus's life, I have to say that the victim here is really Jesus himself. As many will know, Jesus was a man whose death was brought about by way of public crucifixion on a cross. But we're not going to be talking a lot about that because in Christie's spin on this story, and, and just as you were saying, Sarah, because she obviously knew this story so very well, she actually had, you know, the wherewithal to play around with it in an interesting way. What Christie does here is that we have what I would call an attempted murder of Jesus, not as the middle-aged man who was crucified, but as an innocent newborn baby. All will be explained. Let's talk a little bit about some suspects. We really only have two other named characters in this story. There is a brief cameo by Joseph at the end, but blink and you miss him. So <laughs> <laughs> in a way, I think we can consider both of these characters suspects in the attempted demise of baby Jesus. Could you take our first suspect, Sarah? Sure. So shockingly enough, at least where the gospel story is concerned, but perhaps not shockingly where an Agatha Christie story is concerned, the first suspect is Mary. That's right. Jesus' own mother. Uh, which is interesting also because Mary functions really as the detective in the story or the investigator. But, you know, in uh, Agatha Christie's story, just because you are the point of view character or the detective doesn't mean you can't possibly be the murderer. You can be both. So Mary is is our first and primary suspect. Assume nothing in Christie, even in Star Over Bethlehem, <laughs> her, her Halloween <laughs> story. Yes. Exactly. All right. Our second suspect is a presence referred to mainly in this story as the angel. That would be with a capital T and a capital A, the angel. This angel comes to Mary and makes her an offer that she very well may not be able to refuse. Mm. We will get into it as we enter the world as it appears to be. 
So we open on what will be recognizable to even the most casual of observers of Christmas, and that would be the nativity scene. Mary is in the stable. She's smiling at her baby in the manger. All the animals are around her. Joseph isn't there. He, you know, he popped out <laughs> for some <laughs> for some groceries or something. I'm not exactly sure where he is. But again, he does make a cameo at the end of the story, but he is largely absent here. An angel, the angel, appears, shining, quote, with the radiance of the morning sun, and the beauty of his face was so great that Mary's eyes were dazzled and she had to turn aside her head, end quote. So picking it up from there, you know, having an angel show up to Mary, that's not surprising. And being overwhelmed <laughs> by the presence of the angel, that's not surprising. She's like, been there, done um, that, right? <laughs> yeah, right, right. But of course, you know, again, if you're a close reader of the Bible story, this is not the time or place for the angel to appear. So this is this is no. Christie's innovation now. So the angel says in a voice like a golden trumpet, do not be afraid. Okay, that's proof he's an angel. That's always the first thing the angel says, right? Fear not. <laughs> And she replies uh, in good, uh, humble Mary fashion, I am not afraid, O holy one of God, but the light of your countenance dazzles me. And then she asks to hear the commands of the Lord God. But then, very interestingly, the angel says, I have come with no commands, but since you are specially dear to God... It is permitted that with my aid, you should look into the future. And this is very interesting because he calls on when Gabriel comes to Mary, the Annunciation says, Hail Mary, full of grace. So like this angel is echoing that previous angel's address to her. Mm. Well, this is exciting now. His future, meaning that she can look at baby Jesus' future. So of course she would say yes. What mother wouldn't want to look into her newborn son's promising future? So they join hands and the angels feels like touching flame, yet flame that did not burn. She's a little worried by this, but he assures her, don't be afraid. My touch won't hurt you. The difference is that the angel is immortal, but Mary is not. So we then cut to uh, what the reader can infer to be the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prays between his last supper and his arrest. This is a scene, you know, a tableau known to many a devout Christian. Mary's maternal heart recognizes her son and is thankful that he has become a good man, a devout man. He prays to God. But then he shows his face and she saw the agony on it, the despair and the sorrow. And she knew that she was looking on greater anguish than any she had ever known or seen. For the man was utterly alone. He was praying to God, praying that his cup of anguish might be taken from him, and there was no answer to his prayer. God was absent and silent. So obviously, this is not what is supposed to happen, right? With everything that Mary has been promised by Gabriel, but just in general, like any pious mother hoping for her son, like why would God have abandoned her boy when he's in this great anguish and needs God so badly? So now she turns to the angel and asks, why doesn't God comfort him? And the angel says, and you know, that kind of, uh, riddling way that angels have. It is not God's purpose that he should have comfort, which basically explains nothing whatsoever. But, you know, Mary gets this. She accepts it and says, okay, it is not for us to know the inscrutable purposes of God. But has this man, my son, has he no friends? So this is interesting. Mary can accept that, you know, sometimes God does hard things, but surely her, her good son who prays should have some friends. 
So then the angel points her to another part of the garden where she sees the sleeping disciples, as we know them to be. And she reacts rather bitterly, as a mother might, at the indifference of her son's friends to his plight. But the angel's more merciful than she is, says, well, come on, they're only fallible human creatures. So Mary can only fall back on, all right, well, God is silent and his friends are asleep, but at least I know that he is a good man, my son, a good and upright man. She can comfort herself with that. So the scene then changes and Mary sees three criminals headed for execution, carrying their crosses, followed by a crowd and Roman soldiers. She sees the bestial face of one of the criminals and concludes, yes, certainly he is a criminal. He looks like a bad man, as you know, potentially problematic it is to imagine someone looks like a bad person. <laughs> <laughs> but then she recognizes one of these other people carrying the cross, and it's her son. And she cries, no, no, it cannot be that my son is a criminal. Then the scene shifts again. These are obviously like rapid changing scenes, the angel showing Mary. And now she sees him nailed to and hanging on the cross. And in this moment, she comes right for the time where Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, let me just jump in here as the religious detective of Agatha's faith that she had options for what she was going to show Jesus saying on the cross. He says several things from the cross, but if she wants to get like the last words of Jesus, Agatha actually had three options. So she could have gone to the gospel of Luke, where Jesus' last words are, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. Or she could have gone to the gospel of John, where Jesus' last words are, it is finished. Both of them are relatively calm and triumphant, giving what a death by crucifixion feels like. But instead, Agatha decides to zero in on the last words as recorded in Mark and Matthew's Gospels. And that is this wrenching, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So this is really fixating on the, the anguish and abandonment part that Mary has already been seeing in the previous scenes, but now culminates in these last words before death on the cross. And it's obviously extremely upsetting. And Mary protests, no, no, it is not true. He cannot have done anything really wrong. There has been some dreadful mistake. It can happen sometimes. There has been some confusion of identity. He has been mistaken for someone else. He is suffering for someone else's crime. And of course, we know that this is actually true, just not in the sense that Mary perceives it to be. And, I th and we really feel for Mary at this point. Mm. And I also just like what a great Christy thing this is to do is for a sentence to be uttered that's true, but not in the way at least the speaker thinks it's true or, you know, and, and we have to be good detectives of the story to understand that she is speaking the truth, but not the way she thinks she is either. Yep. So then, however, the angel is going to show her that, well, no, he's not actually suffering for someone else's crime in the sense that Mary thinks, but for his own. So now the angel shows her in another a switch of tableau, the figure of the man she revered most on the earth, the high priest of her church. 
And just another little side note from me here. I'm very struck that she says the high priest of her church. She doesn't say the high priest of the temple. She doesn't make it super Jewish here. She is making this kind of like by using the word church, she's making it proper to Christians rather than externalizing the blame onto the Jews. And I just note that because as you have often observed, there's a lot of casual anti-Semitism in Christie. So it's kind of happy like in this one place where the consequences are pretty high, she actually makes it proper to Christians rather than blaming the Jews. I was very struck by that too, almost to the point where, because I don't have the same, the same sort of confidence, I think as a reader, I'm not as familiar with my Bible as, as you clearly are, Sarah. And I was thinking to myself while I was reading the story, well, they, they are Jewish, right? (laughs) That, you know, that is, (laughs) that, that's kind of the point, you know, not the point, but like, that's, that's how the story works. And it's minorly alluded to, but there's not a whole lot made of it. And I think it is really interesting that she chose to do it that way. And and I think it kind of shows that this is the focus of this story. The purpose of this story really is different from what she's doing in her mystery. So there is, there's nothing casual, you know, about if she were to do that, it wouldn't be casual. Right. And um, I think she was putting a lot of thought into how she was characterizing people and different faiths and whatnot. And it, and it does feel respectful. Right. Well, I mean, you know, Mary, Jesus, and this high priest, they're all Jewish together. So it's like an internal quarrel. And so in a way, even if she had drawn more attention here to the high priest being Jewish, it would have kind of missed the point that it's Mary accepting the correct judgments of the high priest of something she belongs to Mm. that, as we're about to hear now, this noble looking priest declares, this man has spoken blasphemy. That is the judgment against her son. But again, this is within the family. It's not between two two different competing religious families at this point in the story. Right. And by the way, it's actually didn't occur to me while I was reading the story, but just while we were reviewing it just now, this flashing onto different scenes of her son's life. Sure. It's her son's life and not her life, but it reminds me a little bit of a Christmas Carol. <laughs> um, oh maybe, yeah, yeah. Right. Maybe just because I'm in the Christmas mode, but we know that Christie was a huge Dickens fan and this is a Christmas Christie. I mean, this was very much written, I think to be, consumed around the Christmas holiday. And I have to imagine that she was at least indirectly inspired by Christmas Carol, which had kind of, you know, sunk in to her DNA as a writer or just as a person, (laughs) honestly. Right. um, And as a Dickens fan. So I I, I love the connection that I think we can draw between a Christmas Carol and this story. Yeah, that um, means that we are reading A Ghost of Christmas Past, but she is she is seeing the ghost of Easter future or Good Friday future. <laughs> I love it. Yes, exactly. Thank you for putting it that way. So we kind of diddly-oop our way back <laughs> into the stable, <laughs> back to the nativity scene. And Mary is in a state of total disbelief. You know, she and Joseph and now baby Jesus, they they are a good God-fearing family. Her family, Joseph's family, they are going to bring their son up to practice religion and to revere and honor the faith of his fathers. A son of ours could never be guilty of blasphemy. I cannot believe it. All this that you have shown me cannot be true. Mary is still protesting to this angel. This just cannot be right what you have shown me. Right. So, I mean, this is the time, right, to doubt whether the angel is telling her the truth about the future. And so then in the story, the angel shows his face to her again. He is still beautiful and radiant. And he says to Mary, what I have shown you is truth. It's capitalized in the text. For I am the morning angel and the light of the morning is truth. Do you believe me now? 
And this really is the key moment in the story because I'm just going to quote directly from Christie's text here. And sorely against her will, Mary knew that what she had been shown was indeed truth with a capital T. And she could not disbelieve anymore. She's so distressed in this moment that she looks at the baby and she cries out, Oh, indeed, it would have been better for you if you had never been born or if you had died with your first breath, for then you would have gone back to God pure and unsoiled. So at that point, it becomes clear that this was actually where the angel hoped to bring Mary by showing her the terrible future waiting her son. He he wanted her to recognize it would have been better for this child never to have been born or to have died in childbirth. So the angel says, look, I realize as a mother that you are grieving. So I am actually going to give you the power to say whether this child of yours will live or die. I sort of reading this, I was like, oh, he's the angelic department of pre-crime, like from Minority Report or something, like the little <laughs> yeah. little ball rolled down the chute, like, uh-oh, criminal. <laughs> But Mary, being the pious woman that she is, she doesn't quite understand what he's saying. What she takes from it is, the Lord gave him the baby to me. If the Lord now takes him away, then I see it may indeed be mercy. And though it tears my flesh, I submit to God's will. So I don't know, maybe this is more like the sliding doors version. <laughs> like, um, you know, she could see, well, if he lives, it'll turn out this way. So even though it would break my heart to lose my baby, maybe it's all for the best. If if God wants to take him from me now, then God actually has been merciful, showing me what would have happened to him anyway. So I will, I will submit. I will accept what God God determines. Right. I will accept this thing that may or may not happen beyond my control. And the angel is like, mm, that's not quite good enough. <laughs> the angel says, and now I'm quoting again from the text. It is not quite like that. God lays no command on you. The choice is yours. You have seen the future. Choose now if the child shall live or die. And the angel gives her no advice as to what she should do. Christy describes him here, I think in, in a very evocative way. He was golden and beautiful and infinitely remote. Thanks. Mary is just left to think to herself about matters. And so she does. She thinks slowly and carefully. And wouldn't you know, as she does this, she begins to notice little things among those scenes that she has been shown. We might even say that she begins to pick up on clues. So, clues. yay! Oh, happy day! Let's take a walk now along our first, we actually have two, our first bridge of clues here with Mary, mother of Jesus, as she notices some things that she didn't notice before. Would you like to take the first clue, Sarah? Sure. So these are the clues in the scenes that the angel has shown her that she didn't pick up on the first time because she was so concentrated on her son's anguish. But the first clue we get is she thinks back to the cross scene. And uh, here's how, how Agatha puts it. She saw, for instance, the face of the man on the right-hand cross, not an evil face, only a weak one. 
and it was turned toward the center cross, and on it was an expression of love and trust and adoration. And it came to Mary with sudden wonder. It was my son he was looking at like that. So again, the reader who knows the story will infer that the man with the bestial face we saw earlier, who's obviously a criminal, um, he is one of the two criminals executed with Jesus. But in Luke's version of the story, the other criminal is not so bad, so unrepentant. This is obviously the man who is not evil, but weak. And he's the one who rebukes the other criminal for cursing Jesus and says, hey, we're getting what we deserved. But then this weak criminal turns to Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. So that's clearly who we're supposed to understand this not evil, but weak criminal who adores her son. That's who it is. Right. All right. Clue number two, Mary is thinking about the scene in the garden, uh, you know, when when she sees her son grown up as a man. Christy writes, and suddenly, sharply and clearly, She saw her son's face as it had been when he looked down at his sleeping friends in the garden. There was sadness there and pity and understanding and a great love. And she thought, it is the face of a good man. It's a small revelation, but a key one because she's acquiring the tools to kind of come to the realization that her son can be a good man and a criminal. At the same time, it's it's thinking outside the box, <laughs> isn't it? And in yeah. and she sort of has to do it. It's forced upon her in this moment when she's just a, a mother with a newborn baby enjoying her baby in the first flush of having given birth to him. So it's a lot, <laughs> I think, to get there. But I love the way that Christy steps this out because she's really like coming to the realization step by step. And I think this is this is another key step. Mm. Yeah, Mary perceives that there is a contradiction. The issue is to yeah. find out where exactly does the contradiction lie. Mm-hmm. And so, and you remember, she was angry and bitter at the friends asleep, but then she sees that her son looks at them with pity and understanding. Yeah. So that's a great contrast, even to her own reaction. Yeah. That takes us to clue number three of looking back over the scene. She's back where the splendid high priest is standing and accusing her son of blasphemy. But this time, instead of looking at the priest, she focuses on Jesus and she realizes in his eyes was no consciousness of guilt. So for a man who was good and wise and understanding and, and full of pity, uh, clearly it would have shown on his face if he had felt that he was guilty of the crime as charged, but clearly he doesn't. So now we're getting a little bit closer to where the contradiction actually lies. Right. And, you know, from these three clues, the major deduction to be drawn is that even though her son has grown up to be a a criminal or a supposed blasphemer and to have violated the laws of his church or temple, right? Her son is also just as clearly a good man, a loved man, a wise man, a kind man, et cetera, et cetera, perhaps even a great man, so that the contradiction must lie in those laws, right? The, The contradiction is in something outside of her son himself. Because she's doing this all from the perspective of, you know, of it not having happened yet. She has to get there before it's happened. And that's really hard. But I think Christy sells the fact that she's able to get there through her intense love 
or her son, because she's she is able to laser focus on him in these visions that she receives and make these deductions based on that laser focus of a mother for her child. Right. So, but this is exactly the point now where the angel is going to come and speak exactly to that, that love for her son, because now the angel kind of breaks into her uh, self-reflection and says, will you spare your son suffering and evil doing? Uh, interestingly, both of those are there suffering, which he could just be an innocent victim of, but evil doing, that means he's, you know, the active agent of whatever crime he's guilty of. And so Mary finally comes to her conclusion. And here we're going to we're going to quote her whole speech because it, it's a powerful one. We got to hear the whole thing. So she says, it is not for me, an ignorant and simple woman, to understand the high purposes of God. The Lord gave me my child. If the Lord takes him away, then that is his will. But since God has given him life, it is not for me to take that life away. For it may be that in my child's life, there are things that I do not properly understand. It may be that I have seen only part of a picture, not the whole. My baby's life is his own, not mine. And I have no right to dispose of it. And Kemper, when I got to the end of the speech, I could hear <laughs> in my mind's ear, David Suchet saying in Hercule Poirot's voice, I do not approve of murder. <laughs> That's the best, the best paraphrase. That is exactly what Mary is saying there. <laughs> yeah. You were you were dead on with that. I really, really love that. Well, this angel, this pesky angel tries again. <laughs> and he says, will you not lay your child in my arms and I will bear him back to God? And Mary responds, take him in your arms if it is God's command. But I will not lay him there. And the angel then vanishes. And at this point, Joseph well, just so happens to return. Couldn't have gotten there <laughs> 10 minutes earlier, Joseph. And Mary tells him. The you know, actually, story. can I just jump in here? Yes. This, I didn't think of it until just now. But this is, of course, like also echoing unconsciously, maybe the Garden of Eden story, because the serpent gets Eve alone. Sorry if I just spoiled the story there, but I think listeners know where <laughs> this is going. Uh, Eve is alone with the serpent who tempts her. And then the serpent scuttles off and Adam comes over. And then, you know, Eve is left with Adam to discuss what just happened. And so we have a kind of mirror image there. But as we're going to see, it turns out quite opposite from the Adam and Eve story. So I think actually it makes sense that Joseph was absent for this thing that Mary is going through. If ever there were a story whose spoiler alert has expired, I think it might be <laughs> what happens in the Garden of Eden. So I am not telling anyone to fast forward for any amount of time for that. Um, yeah, I really love that. I, I have to imagine Christy perhaps did structure it in the same way, or, or again, at least there was some sort of a, you know, a subconscious kind of mapping on that she was doing there. So Mary tells Joseph the whole story, as a wife does to a husband, as spouses do. <laughs> and he approves of what she did. And he muses that it may have been a, quote, lying angel, end quote. Mary says, no, 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 he didn't lie. 
She was sure of that with every instinct in her. That's what Christy writes. And Joseph says that, you know, they're going to be very careful with their religious instruction of baby Jesus. He will go with us to the synagogue on the Sabbath and keep all the feasts and the purifications. That's one of the few references where we know that they were talking about a Jewish faith there. And But interestingly, it's only deployed positively, like the positive program to make sure the boy is good. That's when it becomes specifically Jewish and the negative portrayal is attributed to a high priest of the quote church. church. So again, I'm really fascinated that she made that choice to associate these very obviously specifically Jewish words with a positive program. Absolutely. And we know that she wrote this story at least in the mid to late 40s. You know, that's when it was mm, first published. So she right. probably wrote it around that time. And she was certainly still engaging in, unfortunately, you know, in some casual anti-Semitism around that time. So it is it is really interesting to contrast this, I think, with some of the mysteries. Joseph and Mary look down and the baby is holding out his hand, which is something that we've seen baby Jesus do in many depictions, as if to say mm-hmm. to his mother, well done. And at this point, I'm thrilled to say that we actually have our second bridge of clues here for this story. Because, sure, this angel has been referred to as the angel for most of the story. Joseph has just seeded a little bit of doubt here, saying, hmm, maybe it's a lying angel. And this story, not surprisingly, hinges on the true identity of this angel. So who exactly is this angel? Well, luckily, Agatha Christie is the writer of this story, so we have some clues to answer that question. Sarah, take it away. Well, clue number one is that at the very beginning of the story, and how often does Agatha put the answer right at the beginning of the story, but you're not paying attention, (laughs) the angel is described as shining, quote, with the radiance of the morning sun. And again, this is proof to me of how well Christy knew her Bible and her ideal reader would have to be very astute to pick up on the point of that too, because this is an allusion to the book of Isaiah, the prophet, chapter 14, verse 12, which is speaking to a particular angel. And the verse is, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. This angel in question goes by the name of the light bearer that's drawn from the day star or sun of dawn. And in Latin, that comes to us as Lucifer. That is right. Christy, (laughs) you're astonished, right? You never saw that one coming. Christy puts us on notice in paragraph three of the story that the angel visiting Mary is none other than Lucifer. That's the devil, in case you weren't sure. (laughs) Right, right. Just dot dot all those I's, cross those T's. Yes. So clue number two is really an additive clue, but it drives the point home that the angel in question is Lucifer. Um, This is when the angel says, for I am the morning angel and the light of the morning is truth. Once again, we're getting a reference to the angel as the morning angel, which is Lucifer's designation. Also, you know, when the angel says that everything he's shown Mary is the truth, we touched on this as as we were going through the scene, but he is technically accurate. It's only upon further considering these scenes that she's been shown that Mary realizes the deceptive nature of these scenes on their surface. The angel has basically been employing yield misdirection or sleight of hand, (laughs) a classic trope of detective fiction and of Agatha Christie in particular, not to mention the age-old trick of omission, which is a trick Agatha Christie wielded better than practically any other mystery writer in one book in particular. I won't say which one. The angel here 
sure is telling the truth with a capital T, but he is not telling the whole truth. And I love that the tricks he's playing here really are tricks that we see in so many of Christie's mystery novels. <laughs> but unlike in Christie's mystery novels, like if you are, uh, you know, a biblically informed reader of the stories, you're like practically screaming at the page, Mary, don't fall for it. He's not yeah. telling you the whole story. <laughs> so you get to like actually for once be on the side of knowing the whole story and just cheering, please, Mary, please, Mary, don't fall for it. Um, and that actually leads us to clue number three, which is the angel, I think, kind of constrained or forced to tell the truth somewhat against his own will, has to say God lays no command. The angel is offering Mary, though, the power to act as God, essentially, because she gets to determine whether or not her child will live or die. And the deduction of, of faith here, of religious devotion to God, would be that she has no right to make a decision that lies with God alone. She does not have the right to determine life or death over her child, which she says, it's his life, it's not my life. God can take that life because it's God's life to take or to grant, but not me. So that means this angel, by offering to marry God's own power, can only be an angel who aspires after God's power himself and intends harm to both Mary and the child, the child especially. And that takes us into the world as it actually is. We know everything that's going on here. And fortunately, Christy pulls up the veil and really just tells us straight out what's going on here. Because after Mary makes her choice, after she chooses wisely, we see the angel's true colors. And Lucifer is, quote, quivering with pride and rage. He is furious that a foolish, ignorant woman should resist him. And he looks forward to tempting that baby when that baby is grown into a man. And this, of course, is forecasting Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And Lucifer is quite certain that he will succeed where he has failed here with Mary and that Jesus will be tempted. Though, of course, Lucifer is also wrong about this because Jesus will successfully resist the temptation in the wilderness many years into the future. It turns out that Jesus was a good boy, listened to his mother, and she trained him well to resist the devil's temptation. Those synagogue lessons paid off. They did. They did. <laughs> and then finally, in case we hadn't quite gotten the point, now Christy actually tells us plainly the identity of this angel. Uh, quote, and Lucifer, son of the morning, laughed aloud in ignorance and arrogance and flashed through the sky like a burning streak of fire down to the nethermost depths. And this is clearly alluding to, again, the Gospel of Luke, this time, chapter 10, verse 18, where Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Our scene then shifts again to the east, where three watchers of the heavens came to their masters to notify them of a great light in the sky. It must be that some great personage is born. And they all murmur of signs and portents, but a very old watcher contradicts them and says, a sign from God? God has no need of signs and wonders. It is more likely to be a sign from Satan. It is in my mind that if God were to come amongst us, he would come very quietly. Mm. So I think definitely that last line is Agatha's own sentiment because yeah. uh, we won't go into the other stories in this collection, but she is very into the subtle and quiet appearance of God in our midst. That is a recurring theme here. But the crazy thing 
about this story <laughs> that reconfigures the title of the story and thus of the whole book is that actually the star over Bethlehem is not some happy constellation that astronomers of the ancient worlds identified from Persia and followed to Jesus' birthplace. No, actually the star over Bethlehem is Lucifer falling from the sky in his ignorance and arrogance at his failed temptation of Mary on his way back to hell. The star of Bethlehem is an angry devil. What a thing to do. <laughs> I mean, this is all conjecture, but if I had to guess what the genesis of this story was, it would be that Christy had the idea when she was just kind of musing over the traditional story, thinking to herself, hmm, the star of Bethlehem, that seems like such a flashy showboaty sort of thing to do <laughs> seems much more like the work of Satan than God, because it is true. I mean, it's a through line in these stories and it's so Christie esque I think to associate ultimate goodness <laughs> and stability and faith with someone who, who comes in quietly and sort of like does the work behind the scenes. And like, you don't even realize mm. that he's there until the work has been done. And that I think, you know, goes hand in hand with the, the way she was or, or tended to be. She was not a person who herself liked to showboat. And she often had these ideas about established traditions. You know, she mentions in so many of her books how she would have done the three weird sisters in Macbeth, for example. And she mm, had right, she had right. all sorts of unconventional ideas about Shakespeare and other very traditional things. And I could easily see her saying, Star of Bethlehem, sign of God. No. Sign of, you know, sign of the devil, more like it. Hey, I'm going to write a story about that. <laughs> you know, and and, and <laughs> totally pull, she totally pulls it off. She does. It's amazing. And you know, there there is lots of room to play here because uh, I think contrary to popular belief, there is so little about the devil or devils or demons in the Bible. I mean, almost nothing in the Old Testament. And even in the New Testament, which is the main source for it, there's very little. And the New Testament is really not interested in devils or what they're about or how they exist or how they can continue to resist God. They're just kind of there. And the point is to get rid of them and loosen their power over people. But there's no real curiosity. So actually, you know, she has kind of the freedom because of the relative paucity of commentary in the Bible to just kind of see, well, what would happen if we, you know, reconfigured this kaleidoscope a little bit? I thought it was weirdly effective, actually, because we've had to have this shift about what kind of person Jesus is. Like, how does this contradiction exist that he's a good and innocent man and yet condemned as a criminal and executed? And then to like, in the same way, sort of flip around the Star of Bethlehem, which is such a happy, cheerful thing and on top of every Christmas tree and turn it into the screamingly angry Satan diving down into hell. I mean, wow, that takes chutzpah, but also... Tremendous confidence in the Christian story and the biblical text to play with it that way. And talk about the ultimate extrajudicial ending, right? I mean, you know, <laughs> we've right, talked so much right. on this podcast about the way she she does play around with, you know, how these characters can sometimes exist outside of the traditional justice system. And that's that's kind of the whole point here is that, yeah, I mean, this was a, a systemic failure, or at least it, this was a break, you know, a systemic break and, and, and a beginning of something new, which is part of what Jesus did. It's, you know, it's a new philosophy because this to me feels like a very New Testament-y story, but it's like she's injecting a lot of the Old Testament into 
a New Testament story. Oh, do you know what I mean? With like with this talk of like Lucifer and devils and the focus on devils, and it's really interesting what she's doing here. Well, I mean, that's the funny thing about, like I said, there is almost, I mean, other than this one verse from Isaiah, which kind of like got lifted by Christians to illuminate some of the devil-related texts in the New Testament. It's actually not an Old Testament concern at all. It's just a, a little pet peeve of mine, but people often talk about the Old Testament God as the God of wrath, which is mm. like such a desperate misreading of the Old Testament. There's plenty of wrath in the New Testament and so much mercy in the Old Testament. So to me, this is very much like focused on this Christmas story. But I think for her, it's both the clue thing, but also, as you said, there's so much interest in her books about extrajudicial solutions to crimes. You've mentioned before how rarely she calls into question the justice system, at least in, in her England in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the story of Jesus is like the ultimate story of the miscarriage of justice, where all all systems fail. So I think that's kind of where her teasing out of the story lies primarily. This is Agatha Christie's down with the patriarchy moment. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, to put a modern spin on it. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that strikes me, and there is this one last little, you know, final shift back to the stable, right? And to the main right, right. That, and that, you know, lovely nativity scene where all the animals are having a great time and all the visitors pile in and they're admiring the smiling baby and you know, they say there never was such a child. And and that's a very traditional ending to this Christmas story. But it reminded me actually of the ending of Stay With Me, The Lord of the Rings. And this isn't the first <laughs> time that I've made a comparison between Agatha Christie and J.R.R. Tolkien, but I don't think that I actually do it enough. I believe that the only other time I talked about this was with the scholar Alison Light, because she talked about that in her seminal work about Christie from several decades ago. But they were born around the same time, and they're both very mid-century English writers. And they both have this similar emphasis on the importance of domesticity over, mm. over everything else in their very different genres. And it's so striking how the Lord of the Rings that, you know, you can't have a bigger, broader, bolder tale of adventure. And it ends on this note of the hobbits going home and getting married and living out their lives with their children. And like that being what's worth it. Like the whole adventure was Mm. for that. And it's like this idea of all of this then boiling down, we get this final little coda on the happy family and the people sort of surrounding the baby. And it's a note of domesticity that rings true Mm. for me as to like who Christy was. And I think that too uh, speaks to the enduring power of, of her work, not just a tale like this, but many of her mysteries as well, because she was so interested in domesticity, actually, and very accurate about how she depicted it, which is why I think her books still speak to people, because even though domesticity changes, <laughs> the sense of domesticity and the importance of it is universal and timeless. And I think that's also why, you know, Tolkien is is still very relevant and people can't get enough of him. And it's just funny because they both, if you describe both of them, they seem like such dinosaurs and like they're so stuck mm-hmm. completely stuck in this specific time in a specific country in a specific moment but then because they're dealing with this you know these somewhat universal themes and applications i think that's part of why they're as powerful as they are and i don't always think of tolkien when i'm reading christie which is why i don't make that comparison enough but i did think of it when i was reading this story 
That is such an interesting observation. And as you're talking, I was just thinking of the other stories in this collection, and they are all oriented somehow towards, you know, family life or ordinary life being blessed or restored or Mm -hmm. human connections on that very just everyday interpersonal level being healed. And even actually, uh, you know, for what whenever you get back to these stories, the last one in this collection actually goes back to Mary, but many years in the future when Mm -hmm. Jesus is already risen from the dead and ascended into heaven and gone. And she, we figure out, is in exile on the island of Patmos with the beloved disciple slash John, who is in the process of preparing to receive his revelation, which will form the last book of the Bible. But it's so focused on their domestic life together and how she like tries to get him to eat because he's too obsessed with his visions and forgets to eat. And he finally agrees to eat just to make her happy. So there again, I think that really points to that valuation of domesticity and also, you know, the watcher, the old watcher saying, well, I think God would come quietly, not flashily if he came among us. It's a lovely bookend too that I love how we have the first story, last story focusing on Mary and at, at sort of the, not the beginning of, of her life by any means, but sort of, you know, a beginning, it feels like a beginning in the first story and it feels like we have an ending in, in the last and it, it's very elegant. Definitely, definitely. Don't touch that dial. We'll be back in a moment with the rest of our episode. We just wanted to take a moment to ask you, our dear listeners, for a favor. If you haven't already done so, we would very much appreciate it. If you take a moment to, you know, give us a rating or a view wherever you're listening to this podcast. It really helps the podcast out because ratings and reviews make it much easier for other Christie fans such as yourselves to find our podcast. And the more ratings and reviews we get, the more people we can reach. It should take Take you a matter of seconds and lucky you we're going to provide you with those seconds right now so go to it thank you so much and now back to our regularly scheduled programming I think we've analyzed the heck out of that story. Um, <laughs> I think so. <laughs> uh, you know, there's, there but how no fun attitude. to do it the way you've done it with all the other short stories of Agatha as mysteries. I was just like thrilled at how well this one structurally fit with the way you usually break down stories on the podcast. And just to be clear, listeners, this was Sarah's idea to do the breakdown this way. I never would have done this, but, you know, we were sort of talking before actually recording and she said, hey, you know, I actually took all these notes and I broke down the story this way. And I, and I think that kind of works. And she sent them to me and I was like, oh, my God, that absolutely does work. So I'm so glad that we did this. And thank you for having your revelation as to treating this like a mystery. But, you know, I think listeners will be shocked that there's no English language adaptation or any other adaptation of the story. <laughs> Hey, I still think that eventually every single Agatha Christie story will be adapted in some way, shape, or form. So Star Over Bethlehem is just waiting for its moment, as far as I'm concerned. I, I think the the one with the, the mutant animals is obviously the next one to do. <laughs> yes. I should have mentioned that there is a short story here that, that does feature frog birds. They're kind of like half frog, <laughs> half birds, I think. Yeah, seems to be due to a leaky nuclear power plant. And that's not the one set in the year 2000, even. No, it's totally not that. No, in that one to me, I was like, oh, yes, this feels like it was written in the 60s. 
right? Like, <laughs> yeah. That's why I'm pretty sure like most of these other stories were not written, you know, 20 years earlier and serialized. They seem like they were written for this collection. And that feels like a weird, paranoid 60s story. Yeah, really fascinating. I'm going to have to cover <laughs> all of these. Let's be honest. They're so interesting. But yeah. so I mentioned this up top, but I really would love to speak with you a bit more about this piece that you wrote recently on Miss Marple. Because how could I resist the opportunity to talk about my beloved Miss Marple, <laughs> especially after just covering the final Miss Marple short story? I'm still in mourning here. Oh. It's about Miss Marple and the idea of low anthropology. That was a phrase I had never even heard before I read your piece. I would love if you could just explain to listeners what that is and how it relates to our beloved Miss Marple. You bet. So this was inspired by a book written by a friend of mine, David Zoll, who's also a theologian. So his book is called Low Anthropology. And so the idea behind it is basically, so if you take anthropology, not as like what you majored in college, but as your operational theory of human nature. And so his argument is basically that a high or optimistic anthropology, that means expecting a lot out of people, expecting people to ever more improve and grow and every way optimize and maximize their potential actually is terrible for love. It leads to constant disappointment and bitterness at how people have failed us, but also everlasting dissatisfaction with ourselves. We can never be what we want to be. And um, this is a pretty central insight of, of the Bible, especially of the Apostle Paul. Famously in Romans chapter 7, he says, I'm always doing the exact things I don't want to do, but the things I do want to do, I don't have the power to do. What is going on here? Why am I like this? I feel and you, Paul. So, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, anyone with, with uh, serious self-knowledge is going to have to agree, like, there is some serious mismatch between my expectations of myself and my ability to perform. So Dave, my, my friend in this book, he develops instead the idea of a low anthropology, which is basically, let's all step back and have a much more realistic set of expectations for what humanity is capable of, bring down those expectations. And actually what we find in the process is a much greater ability to love ourselves and others. It doesn't mean that bad isn't bad, wrong isn't wrong, sin isn't sin, to use the Christian language, but that if we're actually going to both survive and have love for ourselves and one another, we have to incorporate this failure to meet up our own expectations into it. Is there a biblical basis for this philosophy, or is this something more that your friend kind of came up with himself? I'm just curious. So, yeah, so he coined the term, or maybe his dad, who's also a theologian, like my dad is also a theologian. It, it tends <laughs> to run in families. Um, yeah, so that that's his phrase. But I would say it's a really good shorthand for the entire biblical view of human nature. You know, just a quick educational bit. So many people think like the Bible is a handbook towards improving yourself. It's much more like a record of completely wretched people and how God somehow mysteriously manages to love and redeem them anyway. <laughs> so what he's kind of doing, what Dave is doing in the book is like drawing out this deep conviction about the brokenness and weakness and even, you know, maliciousness and nastiness of human nature, hmm. but in the service of giving us all a little more mercy and seeing our need for redemption. So it is definitely it's completely formed out of biblical ideas. It's just kind of giving a more contemporary language and access point to it. 
Got it. Well, and and I think many listeners will have already made the connection based on what you said to Miss Marple, because that is one of the marvelous things about Miss Marple is that she is a woman of faith. She is a Christian woman, too. And this it comes up a lot. It comes up more than you would think, actually, when you really do mm-hmm. read the texts closely, that Miss Marple is a very Christian woman. And yet she does think very little of people, or she at least has no problem recognizing the many, many and extremely serious faults of her fellow man. And this is, you know, one of the many ways in which she is based on Agatha Christie's auntie granny and perhaps even her other grandmother, since she had two grandmothers on her mother's side, but her auntie granny in particular just had no problem thinking the worst of people and almost invariably being correct <laughs> about that, which is one of Miss <laughs> Marple's superpowers. But I think most people and myself included would view that as a contradiction. The fact that she could be devoutly Christian and have this faith-based approach to her own life and yet also think so poorly of her fellow man. But I think what this low anthropology philosophy is doing is showing that that's not necessarily as much of a contradiction as it might seem to be. Is that fair? In fact, I would say there is zero contradiction that actually with this proper understanding of the Bible's merciful but very low estimation of human potential, that Miss Marple is actually the iconic Christian in the whole Christieverse, that it is her incredibly low expectations of people that actually allows her both to have a kind of mercy to them that almost nobody else does, while at the same time holding strictly to justice. Like, she does understand that there are, even within, you know, fallen humanity, there are lines you don't cross. And one of those is taking another person's life. And in that case, you know, within purely human justice, it is important that the guilty are the ones who are caught and punished, even if we're not entirely thrilled with her passionate devotion to capital punishment. (laughs) But um, on the other hand, you know, and she's really committed to the innocent where crime is concerned, even if she has no assumptions that anyone is innocent where like their souls are concerned. So yes, I I would say Christie is presenting a very authentic Christian attitude towards people. And I also wonder, I'm curious what you think about this. I wonder if Miss Marple is how Agatha is trying to teach herself to grow up and stop being naive because, you know, what happened with her and Archie was so devastating. And, you know, I've read a couple of the biographies and and studies of this, and I, I recently read unfinished portrait, which is kind of her mm-hmm. her version of events. And I see in that a young person, which we know she was very airy, fairy, and full of her imagination, who just couldn't believe bad things would happen and would happen to her, and that you could be betrayed by someone so close to you. And I feel like ever after that, Miss Marple is Agatha's way of teaching herself, be realistic, grow up, accept the truth about people, also so that never happens to you again. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that Miss Marple appeared on the scene mm-hmm. directly after the events leading, totally. leading that ultimately led. It took a while for the divorce to actually happen, but the morass and the mess had essentially taken place already. The break had already occurred by the time that Miss Marple first came on the scene in those short stories that were collected into the 13 problems. And then of course we have murder at the vicarage in 1930. I think there is a reason why she happened then and she didn't happen in 1920. 
And Absolutely. I, think, I think there's a lot in what you're saying there. And, and she talks in a little bit in her, in her own autobiography about the way that her auntie granny would almost scold her, right? Like, why would you ever think that that person was going to do what they said they were going to do? That's so stupid. <laughs> you know, they go like, why? And I'm sure she was like, why would you think that nothing bad would ever happen to you? Why would you think that your husband would be a perfect person and treat you wonderfully, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And I think she, you know, she was one of those, there are just, there's so many layers to her. And it's so interesting because I think she did have that airy, fairy, imaginative, creative side. And that's the foundation upon which this genius of an author was built. But then she had the awareness the self-awareness and just the awareness of the world to be able to appreciate who her auntie granny was and to create this Miss Marvel character. But I don't think she ever lost that, that initial sense of herself either. I think she, she sort of mm. held on to both. So it's almost like she needed Miss Marvel, you know, there is like yeah. a little bit of a grounding influence or something or like a point counterpoint going on. I think you can feel in those Miss Marvel books that they are helping her or serving her in a way that the Poirots weren't because the Poirots are business. Like the Poirots are, yeah, mm. I'm a really good mystery writer and I can, you know, <laughs> I can knock your socks off with some high concept puzzles and whatnot, and I'm going to do it. But this is me putting on a show and it, it always to me, and I can't, you know, textual support can only go so far that you start getting into the ineffable qualities of, of what strikes you as a reader. But it always feels to me like there's something a little more sacred going on with the Miss Marples. And yeah, I think that, that that is really interesting. Could be. I love your theory. And I so I just also want to connect what you said now about Miss Marple and low anthropology to this point that you made in your piece, because I thought it was so brilliant. And I really would just love for you to share it with everyone else. I'm I'm forcing you to because I, I just think <laughs> it's, it's so brilliant. This sort of hypothesis or theory that you posit in the piece as to why mysteries are as enduringly popular as they are, because what I love about this theory is that it doesn't refute the common theory of mystery as catharsis in that we have a broken society and then all the pieces get fit into place and everything has, you know, has a pat ending. And that's very satisfying to people, especially in times of turmoil. I don't think that we need to refute that because I think that is, and that always will be one of the reasons that people read mysteries, but I think there are many other reasons as well. And I think that you have hit on a really good one. Well, I think that we read mysteries to see ourselves in them too, <laughs> that there's something about the crime and maybe like in, in a classic era crime, it doesn't spill over so close to us, like on the news or in hard boiled or in true crime or whatever, but it gives us a place to actually look at our, our dark side, our low anthropology and see our masses of failures. And even if we don't commit murder with our, you know, hands <laughs> or a weapon in our hands, we do in our hearts. Um, actually, you know, and, and to use, another thing that uh, Christy would have known well in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if you even say in your heart, you fool, you have already committed murder, at least before the eyes of God, if not in the mm. eyes of the justice system. Mm. And so there's something about just allowing us to look at that dark side of humanity. But also, you know, the, the other funny thing about, you know, a classic puzzle mystery is that nearly everyone is a suspect or everyone who's interesting and significant in the story is a suspect. 
And often there's a good reason for it, not just being in the wrong place at the wrong time, but some other crime is being committed off to the side or some dark secret is being concealed or whatever. So even the people who are ultimately exonerated of the murder are still found guilty of some other kind of moral or actual crime. So there's something about that kind of universal accusation that, I don't know, is like, I think maybe because especially American culture is so optimistic and optimizing Mm -hmm. that to read a story where everybody is guilty to some degree and the finger gets pointed at everybody, all the secrets come out, there's some kind of a relief like, okay, I don't have to pretend anymore. I have low anthropology. (laughs) I I think that's absolutely brilliant. And And when I read that in your piece... I like underlined it. I, I was like, this rings so true for me because I think, and and yeah, let's just speak for Americans at this point, but I think Americans can be so aspirational. And sometimes mm. I think it's hard for us. It's hard for me actually to read stories in which people are unremittingly and unrepentantly bad, bad, bad. And Christy herself makes fun of this through the character of Raymond West, right? Where Raymond (laughs) West writes these literary novels where everyone is just terrible and they have terrible sex and they do awful things to each other. And he's so proud of himself for creating such, such horrid characters. And I never thought about it, but a mystery is a story in which characters and, and like, 80%, I mean, I don't know the actual percentage, but I'd say probably about 80% of the main cast of characters in any murder mystery, because there do need to be these robust red herring side plots, are bad people to some significant extent. (laughs) They've they've had affairs, or they've had, you know, children they haven't told anyone about, or they've been harboring some other deep, dark secret. And even though they're not unmasked as the murderer at the end, something is unmasked or some indiscretion has been committed. And we still believe in them as people. And I think we're still able to consume the story and to interact with those characters and get that sort of a catharsis out of it in a way that we might not be able to, or I wouldn't be able to in a purely literary novel. And I think that's so helpful and so healthy given that this whole, you know, the low anthropology philosophy, which which also just very much rings true to me. I think that that has to be another reason why these mysteries are so enduringly popular. And I had, I just had never read it expressed exactly in that way. And I think you really are onto something there. Well, thanks. And I'm just glad to hear like classic detective fiction vindicated for its <laughs> realism. Cause like so often it's mm. scoffed at and like, it's the hard boiled and the noir and the true crime and the serial killer stuff. That's realistic. Like, no, how often have you run into a serial killer? But every day you deal with people who let you down and frustrate you every day you deal with yourself. <laughs> so yep. I think actually this classic mystery fiction really is true to life in a way that the Raymond West novels just never will be. Oh, I love that. I could rag on Raymond West all day. (laughs) So I mentioned that you are in Japan right now. I'm actually, I I have to tell all of you listeners, I very rarely do these, these interviews and these co-host gigs with other people at night. But because Sarah is in Japan, I'm actually doing this at night, my time. And I'll be honest with you, Sarah, this is when I used to actually do my co-hosting with Catherine. 
So oh. I think, yeah, I think this is actually the first time since Catherine and I were co-hosting together that I've I've done one of these evening co-hosting gigs. And this has just been lovely. And I really appreciate being able to do this as a dialogue. I've talked about this before, but I think of it as the natural state of the podcast. And I'm so grateful that I was able to discuss this topic, which is such a personal one with another person and not have to monologue it myself like a weirdo. But (laughs) well, I'm so honored to fill such large shoes as Catherine's and I'm so sorry she's not here. And I just want to back you up on your original insight. She has the best voice and I still go back and listen to (laughs) the episodes she was in. I'm just like, Oh, her voice. I love her voice. What a loss. She really does. And it's why, you know, listeners might notice I I sometimes insert that ratings and review <laughs> ad that we yes. did together into the episodes because I really just love having just a sprinkling of her voice in the episode. I actually, I never yeah. skip over those. I just listen to them anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I, I, I don't do it in every episode, but I really do try to do it as, as often as I can. But all of that was a very long-winded <laughs> segue into asking, since you are actually in Japan... I'm curious if you are at all familiar with the Agatha Christie fan club in Japan, whose rankings grid I was fortunate enough to feature on the show. I mean, that rankings grid was old, but I do know that there is some sort of a robust Agatha Christie fan club presence. And I just wonder if you have come across them at all. No, in fact, this is very funny. Everything I know about Agatha Christie in Japan, I've learned from your podcast. So actually it on my list to watch the anime series <laughs> with yes. Marple and Poirot and the duck. Is that right? Oh, there's um, a duck. But no, and yes, I don't, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. And I don't, I don't speak Japanese, so I wouldn't be able to get in on it that way. But yes, it, it's, it makes sense to me though, that that would be here because basically every subculture you can imagine exists in Tokyo somewhere. <laughs> which which is one of the the many wonders of Tokyo, why it's such a magical Indeed. place. I'm curious, though, how did you get into Christie? I mean, what did she mean to you either growing up or, or whenever you, you first came across her? Oh, yeah. So I've been trying to reconstruct. I'm pretty sure the first time I read a book of hers was, wait for it, Hercule Poirot's Christmas. Oh boy. <laughs> it fits the, for the Christmas episode. In Absolutely. The that we're doing yes. here. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it was assigned in 10th grade English class. And it was my, I think it must've been my first time reading a detective novel because I remember like, I was one of those kids who like always read the whole book, like within two days. And then just like, you had to tread water for three weeks while we went through the whole thing <laughs> at everyone else's pace. But I remember my, my best friend at the time was, you know, she wasn't as far along. And so I was like, like saying, oh my gosh, you'll never believe who the killer is. And she's <laughs> like, is it so-and-so? And I was like, no, like an idiot because I didn't understand how spoilers work then. And then finally she she stumbles on who the actual killer is. I won't say here. And I was just like, uh, choke, what do I do now? <laughs> so that's how I learned never to have that conversation with someone who hasn't read the same book that you have. But then I don't think I read them any again until between my sophomore and junior year of college, I was staying with some relatives for the summer working and they just had a huge pile of Agatha Christie's in their house and there wasn't anything else to read. So I started reading them and I have very distinct memories of those. Like I remember the title third girl. I remember the plot of the pale horse. I remember reading curtain, which may have been the first one I read. And of course didn't make any sense being at the (laughs) beginning. And I remember, like the revelatory moment and after the funeral. But the thing is, afterwards, I took away 
I felt that Christy cheated all the time by not giving you all the clues and that she used bigamy constantly. And now that I've gone back, largely due to your podcast, actually, which I discovered through She Done It, shout out to She Done It. Love I've it. gone back and I just like the way I coped with the pandemic was I was like, all right, I'm going to read every Agatha Christie novel. Um, and, you know, and, you know, the completionist part of me came out. Mm-hmm. And having done that, I was like, where did I get the idea, A, that she cheated and B, that she used bigamy? Like I could find two instances <laughs> in the entire canon. So anyway, that calls into question memory and mm. memory calls into question the judicial system itself, but we don't need to go there. And I always was more of like a Dorothy Sayers fan. I discovered her a little bit later and she's more obviously religious and she's a very stylish writer. She's super smart and shows it off. And there's a kind of, you know, the development of Peter Whimsey and, and Harriet Vane and as like humans is much deeper. So I was very like snotty towards Agatha Christie until I started rereading with your podcast. But then I realized it's just like, there's no comparison. They're just two very different kinds of authors. So I feel like Agatha Christie is the kind, like the sketch artist, like Picasso, you know, who like can draw five lines on a piece of paper and it evokes the universe. Whereas Dorothy Sayers is much more like, to me, like she's a mosaic and there's lots of jewels and bright colors and flashing lights. But you, you just don't, you don't go to those two different kinds of pieces of art for the same reason. They serve totally different different artistic visions. I subscribe to that analogy. And I think I would take it one step further and and you don't have to go there with me because I think that Agatha Christie is a completely different kind of a writer from say a Dorothy Sayers or a PD James. But I think that the kind of quote unquote artwork she does is much more unusual than what a lot of those other writers do. And I think like Picasso, for example, there's only one Picasso, you know, like, I think Mm. it's Mm -hmm. what Christie's doing. Almost no one else could do, which is why anyone who tries to imitate her, it's kind of a disaster. Whereas, (laughs) and I say this, I'm, I'm actually, I'm not as well read in Dorothy Sayers. I have to admit, but I, I have gotten into actually in the last couple of years on the Patreon account, we read cover her face, actually the first PD James mystery. And I love PD James. And I had read a few PD Jameses when I was younger, but I think what PD James is doing is a lot more traditional and conventional. She's doing it excellently, but she's doing, you know, Mm -hmm. you can see, I think the sort of almost like the 19th century tradition, which Agatha Christie herself very much also draws on and inherits, but she's doing it in her own very weird way. I think Agatha Christie is such a weird writer. She's Mm -hmm. one of a kind and it's, it's easy to feel snotty about her writing if you don't get it. And especially if maybe you read it when you were younger at a time when you could appreciate some of the more surface aspects of it, which are scintillating, right? Like, which are still good enough to <laughs> love, but the the brilliance of the writing eludes you. And I that's why yeah. I think it is such a revelation to read as an adult and realize, oh my God, like she's doing something really, really interesting here. But that observation does not have to be at the expense of Dorothy Sayers and, and P.D. James. It's not meant to be, but I do think there is that kind of that unique quality to Agatha Christie's writing, which has been a big takeaway of my close read over these last six plus years. Yeah, I don't know if it was a really recent episode you did, because I've been listening to parts of the backlists as well. But at one point, I think you said something like, it's almost like she's writing modern archetypes or modern mythologies. And that's one of the reasons they're so Spartan. And that really makes a lot of sense to me. I think she kind of carved out some kind of of mythological or archetypal figures of the modern era. And mm-hmm. that's that's why you can't imitate her, but also why it works being so unadorned. Like you don't have yeah. 
florid, I suppose you do have florid ancient myths, but like the way you remember them is just the bare bones of the story, which are so effective is all you need is the bare bones and you're completely captivated. I think she works that way too. And I think, yeah, I think the, the kind of art that Dorothy Sayers is doing is just of a different order. She's, she's not going for, for archetypal work. She's right. very much like zeroing in on the specifics of Peter Whimsey and Harriet Vane and the people they encounter, but not yes. on, on the super underground level of reality. Yes, 100%. And by the way, and, and and I'll say this, I don't talk about my own writing very often on the podcast because this isn't a podcast about my writing. It's a podcast about Agatha Christie. <laughs> but I include myself in that category of people who write very traditionally and conventionally. And even though I'm writing... When I write mysteries, I'm trying to do certain things in homage to Agatha Christie because I love her so much. I would never even attempt to try to write like her because I know that I wouldn't be able to. I think it was actually Jillian Gill also who said she she writes some adult fairy tales. <laughs> they're they're almost like Oh, sure. Right? Mm. Fairy tales for adults and that's why, you know, here in 2023 we're still chugging away reading them and talking about them and discovering new things about them and having big new splashy movies come out every single year both <laughs> on the big screen and the small screen and everywhere else all over the world. So, yeah, it, it's a great thing. She's truly so, in a class of her own. She is. She is. And so I'm curious, do you have a favorite Agatha Christie? You have identified some of the early ones you read, but do you have a favorite? Mm. You know, I, I'm almost embarrassed to admit this, but Hercule Poirot's Christmas really does have a sweet spot <laughs> in my heart because it was the first. I just think the clues are amazing and the twist is so shocking. So, um, yeah, I know it has gotten a little denigration on this podcast. I'm not going to hold you to account for that. But um, yeah, and I think it was one of <laughs> I know, I know. And I think it was one of the first I rediscovered when I started reading her again. And it was like, this is really good. I'm going to keep going. So I'm going to yeah. stick by that one. Hey, I think it's the first one is always a magical one, right? Even though I actually can't True. remember what the first Agatha Christie I read was, unfortunately. I wish I could, but I cannot. <laughs> so I love that. And then I couldn't let you go without asking the question that I ask uh, nearly everyone on this podcast, Poirot or Marple? I know. I hate to say it, but it is Poirot and for the same reason. But also, I have to say, it's because probably the next time I picked up of Agatha Christie in adulthood after that college reading was I was vacationing in Belgium with my husband and son. We were taking a bicycle trip. I didn't bring enough to read. I went to a used bookstore and lo and behold, I found the big four, which is a totally awful, oh stupid disaster <laughs> of a Christie book. I get that. But it was Poirot and it was in Belgium. And um, and then we uh, I lived in France for almost eight years. So just something about his little his French utterances and stuff and his concern with gastronomy, which I have to say speaks very much to my stomach as well as my heart. So in terms of like affection definitely Poirot. But as you know, because I have not written about Poirot, I have written extensively about Marple, but she, she almost kind of like intimidates me. Like she, I, I kind of need her also to keep me grounded, but like, I'm not sure I'd <laughs> want to cozy up to her. Whereas Poirot, I know I could cook him a dinner that he would really enjoy. He would not shudder and, you know, we would get on famously, but Miss Marple, I, I think I'd want to more like consult when I need help. 
yeah, your entry point for Poirot would be his stomach and you kind of have like a surefire path there, but you're on shaky ground with Miss Marvel. We all are. It could go, it could either go really well (laughs) or really badly. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Uh, Well, Sarah, where should people go to read or, or listen to more of your work? I imagine there will be many people who will be curious to hear more from you after this episode. Sure. The easiest thing to do is just go to sarahhinlickywilson.com. You'll have to do two H's in a row there because there's an H on the end of Sarah and then Hinlicky. Everything that I do can be found there somewhere or other. And I will also give you a direct link to the Miss Marple essay that I wrote because it's like you have to be signed up for my newsletter to get it. But I'll give you a link to put in the show notes so people can just jump right to it. And I will put that website URL in the show notes as well. So we'll do a link to the website Great. and a link to the Miss Marple article. I'm obviously a big fan of your work and I'm so thrilled that you reached out and asked to come onto the show because this has been a fantastic episode. I've really had so much fun and I just want to thank you for being a co-host with me. You are welcome and thank you. It's been such a treat. That is Star Over Bethlehem by Agatha Christie Mallowen. Thank you again to my co-host for this episode, Sarah Hinlicky wilson Those links to Sarah's work are down in the show notes for this episode, along with a link to the podcast's Patreon page. Sarah is a proud patron, so head on over there if you'd like some bonus content, www.patreon.com forward slash allaboutagatha, or just click on that link. I will be dropping an episode in a few short days all about the Sven Hearson series. That's right. We now exist in a world in which an adaptation of a fictional character created by a fictional character created by Agatha Christie is a reality. Is this a dream or a nightmare? You'll have to tune into that episode to find out. As for my next episode here on the regular podcast feed... I've talked about this a little bit before. I've teased it a couple of times, but I am finally going to take the plunge and do an episode all about the murderers of Agatha Christie. I am going to be ranking the murderers, listeners. This is going to be a super nerdy rankings-focused episode. There are going to be visual aids. I have brackets to show you. If today's episode was Christmas in June, then my next episode is going to be March Madness in June. (laughs) So what I'll be doing is ranking the murderers as opposed to the novels themselves in every full-length Agatha Christie mystery. I'll be pitting different murderers against each other. We're going to have some pretty hairy death cage matches here. I'll get into my methodology on the episode, but I cannot wait to bring that to you in two weeks' time. And in the interim, if you'd like to get in touch, please do. You can email me at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. And you can find the podcast on Twitter at allaboutthedame and on Instagram at allaboutagatha. I have also set up a Facebook page for myself as an author since I do have a mystery novel coming out in January 2024. That would be The Busy Body, very much inspired by Agatha Christie. So you can find my author page at Kemper Donovan Books over on Facebook. 
You can also pre-order the book itself, The Busybody, by clicking on the link to my publisher in the show notes. There is an array of booksellers from which to choose when you click on that link, including bookshop.org, which allows you to contribute a portion of the online purchase to independent bookstores across the United States. Please do give the podcast a rating and or a review if you haven't yet done so. It's always appreciated. And I'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.